Good evening. How are you guys doing? Doing all right? Well, summer arrived today, didn't it? Holy moly. We got the AC cranked in here. We're glad that, we're glad that you're here. Let me see a show of hands for the folks in the room that when you were in like elementary school or middle school or high school, like I want some honesty here, right? How many of you could have been known as a teacher's pet? Let's see, let's see what we got. All right, all right. Wait, wait, keep them up. Let's see this half of the room. All right, all right, okay. So I did a little poll today around our offices because I wanted to get into the mind of the, of the teacher's pet, right? Because I was definitely not that. I was, I was the guy that knew the principal really well. Um, a lot of disruptions. Uh, probably could have been diagnosed with something. But anyway, so I asked, here's the question I asked was, um, if you were a teacher's pet and someone actually called you out on it, like they're like, you're a teacher's pet, how many of you were kind of like, yeah, I know. Like you owned it. You were like, yes. Okay, all right, all right. That's kind of what I thought. Like about 50-50. As I, as I talked at the office, they like, someone were like, oh no, I would have never. I would have defended myself. And I was like, no, absolutely, that's exactly what I was doing. Um, I was trying to get on the good side of the teacher so that if I needed help or uh, whatever, I'd get the benefit of the doubt. And so here's what ends up happening when, when, when the reason I, I ask you that question is it, it's one of those things where for some of you, being accused of being a teacher's pet, you're actually like, no, that's actually a compliment. Thank you very much. Been working hard at that, right? They in, 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 in intended an insult, but unknowingly what they were doing is they were just building and encouraging you in, in the, uh, the way that you wanted to move and, and live. And so that's where we find ourselves in this series. That term friend of sinners was given to Jesus as an insult. It was not a, oh, Jesus is a friend of sinners, thank God. No, it was given to him in Matthew 11 by the Pharisees, seeing who Jesus was interacting with, and they said, ugh, he hangs out with tax collectors and he's a friend of sinners. And I just wonder, as Jesus heard this moniker that was given to him, if he was actually like, you're exactly right. Pharisee, I am so glad that we are finally on the same page. You have, you have, you have seen me correctly. I am a friend of sinners and tax collectors. I just wonder if it was actually kind of like Jesus, like, yeah, yep, that's exactly who I am. So what I wanna do in this series is take a look at this man named Jesus who was accused of being a friend of sinners. I wanna look at the interactions that he has with these quote unquote sinners, how Jesus treats them and how he responds to them. But also on the other side of the coin, how those sinners interact with Jesus and how those sinners respond to Jesus. Now let's talk about this word sinner. <laughs> I know it's an exciting word, we like to talk about it. Like, it's, a bit, it's offensive, isn't it? Like, it, it just is. It, we're, it's, we're, it's just an offensive term. Now, maybe not from a standpoint of like, hey, um, Jesus is a friend of sinners. You're like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm glad for them. That's fantastic. Sinners need Jesus. Where it gets offensive is when we start to realize that, oh, you, wait, you're talking to me? Wait, hold on. <laughs> not me, right? Surely not me. 
But God's word tells us different. Verses like Romans 3.23 that says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it's verses like this where self-awareness is quite possibly the greatest superpower we have. Like as, an, as a guy that's been a pastor for over 25 years, one of the things that I would say is the, the healthiest thing that you can pursue would be self-awareness. Knowing who you are and knowing who you are not. If you're looking for a job or you're in a relationship or whatever your situation is, being self-aware is a super power. If you are looking to hire someone, you wanna know who you are, what you bring to the table, and also what you don't bring to the table. So that you can hire someone that brings what you don't bring, they bring. But when I was young, I was not willing to be self-aware. I needed to be good at everything. And I would bulldoze people who said otherwise. In fact, when I was growing up, Romans 3.23 for me was not offensive at all. <laughs> this just shows you my lack of uh, unself-awareness is I did not clump myself into Romans 3.23. I didn't. I was like, oh man, that's a great, that's a great verse for everybody else. They, yeah, they, they need Jesus. I'm a good kid. I don't swear. I don't disrespect my parents. I don't steal. Like you just go down the list. In high school, I don't drink. I wasn't going around having sex. I wasn't cheating. Oh no, I did cheat. Pretty regularly in Spanish class for sure. But, <laughs> but it's that moment where like, I, I, was, I was not willing to admit, man, I, I am included in that umbrella statement. And that's a hard thing because this word sinner can be offensive because that self-awareness, realizing that I fall under that umbrella for all have sinned, which means I am that sinner. That's me. That kind of self-awareness allows us the ability to see the reality of our situation. Because without that kind of clarity, we don't know up from down, left from right. Like, I'll give you an example. One of the funniest things I've seen on, on uh, a, a reel or a TikTok or whatever, or a reel of a TikTok, whatever it is, was this conversation that this guy was having with this girl. I assume they're either married or they're dating or something. And this guy is dying laughing at the beginning of the, the, the recording. So you can tell they were having a conversation. He's like, I got to record this conversation. It is so ridiculous. And he turns the camera to the, the girl who's driving and he says, so you're telling me that you think north is wherever you're facing. And she's like, yes. He's like, so if you turn to the right, where's north? She's like, where I'm facing, to the right. He's like, but if you turn around backwards and you and, and they had this conversation and watching it, you're like, oh my Lord, how does this sweet woman get anywhere, right? She doesn't know north. She thinks she determines north. And so it is with us. My son would say it this way. When he was in seventh grade, I had permission to tell this story. He was very excited that I was gonna include him in the sermon. In seventh grade, he, he brought home his report card. And we looked at it and I said, Will, bud, this is, this is, not, this is, not, gonna, this is not the standard that we're, we're gonna have for you. 
And we had this back and forth, and, and it, you know, it, it escalated, and eventually he just said, you just want perfection. I was like, no, that's not at all. We're just not doing C's here, okay? Like, <laughs> A's and B's, that's the standard. And this, I kid you not, this is exactly what he looked at me and his mother right in the eye, and he said, Dad, I have a standard for myself that I am good with. Now, one of my better parenting moments, I didn't laugh out loud. I, we just kind of looked at, we made eye contact, we're like, what is that standard? And he could not explain it. Basically, the standard was wherever he was, that was, it was north. Wherever I am, that's the standard. Wherever I'm facing, that's north. But without verses like Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we don't know where we stand. Because here's the truth. The good news of the gospel is not good news to those who don't know that they are sinners. It's just information. So the word sinner simply means missing the mark. Who sets the mark? In my house, for my son, it's my wife and I. We set the mark. This is what we expect. For all of humanity, it is God that sets the mark. And all throughout scriptures, from Leviticus to Exodus to 1 Peter to 1 Thessalonians, this is the standard. You shall be holy, for I am holy. So the standard that God puts forth is holy set apart, unblemished, holy. And when I start thinking about my life through that lens, it's like, oh, okay. Because I know, I mean, I'm not even gonna try and argue. Like, I know I am unholy. And so tonight, what we are gonna talk about is that Jesus sees, he seeks, and saves the sinner. A lot of alliteration tonight. Jesus sees, seeks, and saves the sinner. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 19, verse one. And this is one of the most famous passages, one of the most famous interactions that Jesus has in all of the gospels. But before we get into it, I wanna go back to Luke 18, because as I was studying, I, I, you, know, you wanna read what's before the passage and you wanna read what's after the passage. You wanna get a full view of what's happening in this moment. And what's happening is in Luke 18, you see Jesus give a parable of the persistent widow. And then you see the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, that famous one where the, the, they're both praying. And the Pharisee prays, God, thank you that I'm not like him, the tax collector. And the tax collector says these words, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. And then he follows that up with the story of the rich young ruler. This guy that comes to Jesus and says, hey, what do I need to do to get to heaven? I've, and, and Jesus says, well, you need to you know, follow the law. Basically, be holy as I am holy. He's like, I've done all that since I was young. And Jesus says, well, then go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and follow me. And it says that rich young ruler walked away sad because he had great wealth. And right after it says, and when Jesus saw that, Jesus became sad. And then right after that story, you see Jesus heal the blind man. Jesus is coming into Jericho, right? He's about to go talk to Zacchaeus. 
in, in Luke 19. He's on his way to Zacchaeus. And this guy who's blind shouts out, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops. And he asks the man, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, I want to see. And Jesus gives him sight. And that is what we see him walking right into, right into his interaction with Zacchaeus. So if you have time, here's your challenge for tonight. When, when you go home tonight, I want you to read Luke chapter 18. We don't have time to walk through every single passage, but Luke 19.1, in my opinion, studying this week, is the exclamation point on Luke 18. You see the same themes over and over in Luke 18, and then the exclamation point is the story of Zacchaeus. You see every point that he's making in Luke 18 come to fruition in, in Luke 19. So what you see is Zacchaeus, he's a tax collector. It says this in verse one. He entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus who was a, who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. He's the chief tax collector. He was filthy rich. Here's why. A little context. Tax collectors throughout the New Testament are always included with the likes of sinners, prostitutes, and tax collectors. That's the company, all right? So we got to ask, like, what, what is it, what is, what is this guy done? What is a tax collector? Like, we know the IRS, but it ain't nothing like the tax collector. So let me, let me just give you a little picture of this. The Romans, so this area of Israel was under Roman rule. And so the Romans, get this, sold the job of collecting taxes to the highest bidder. You could bid for the job. But here's the crazy thing. The job came with zero salary. You got nothing from Rome. But you bid for the job. You're like, I want that job. So what was about that job that they wanted so badly? Here's why. Because Rome would say, hey, Andy, you're the highest bidder. Here's the job. We need, we need let's just make up a number, 10% of everyone's income. Oh, and by the way, your salary is whatever else you can get from them on top of that. So they could walk up and say, I want 50% of what you made this week. And then they would start negotiating. And <laughs> I mean, think about this, guys. Number one, they are robbing literally robbing their neighbors. Not only are they robbing their neighbors, they have joined forces with the oppressive government of Rome against their own people. And they live right down the street from all the people they're robbing. And all the people they're robbing are seeing their money go to this guy who is really, really rich. He doesn't hurt for anything. And so that's why tax collectors in the Bible are so looked down upon. They're just kind of seen as the scum of the earth. And so I don't know what, other than greed, thievery, and taking advantage of oppressed people, I don't know what the sins in Zacchaeus' life were, but those are three pretty big ones. Greed, stole money from his neighbors and countrymen, and not only that, he took advantage of those who were already oppressed. And so let's read. He entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus 
who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was not able to because of the crowd since he was a short man. So running ahead, he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus since he was about to pass by. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. There's so much in this passage. But the things that stick out to me really quickly, and then we'll get to my first point, is that Zacchaeus is desperately curious about Jesus. He is desperately curious about who is this Jesus to the point where this rich Roman tax collector says, I can't see, I'm going to run ahead and I'm going to climb a tree. Who does that sound like? That sounds like one of what my kids would do. Ironically, in Luke 18, is the famous passage that says no one will enter the kingdom if they do not have a faith like a child. And here we have Zacchaeus, the sinner, acting like a child. He hears Jesus is coming. And he can't see, and so he's like, all right, my plan, I'm gonna run ahead. I'm gonna climb that tree. I'm gonna see Jesus. But then we see an interesting thing happen. In verse five, it says, when Jesus came to that place, He, Jesus, looked up and said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down here. So my first point this morning, or tonight, is that Jesus sees the sinner. Jesus sees the sinner. Again, if you go back to, uh, we don't have time, never mind. We see Jesus look up at Zacchaeus. We see Jesus call him by his name. We don't see anyone else in this passage called Zacchaeus by his name. They refer to him as a sinful man. And I think it's interesting that everyone else calls Zacchaeus by his sin. Jesus calls him by his name. Jesus sees the sinner. Does he know of the sin? Of course he does but he sees the person. He sees you. He sees me. He knows we're sinners. He went to the cross for us. But he calls Zacchaeus by name. Some of you guys may have seen the show The Office. It's probably my, one of my favorites of all time. If you hang around me, I quote it quite often. And there's one episode where Ryan, the intern, decides to make popcorn. And there's a fire in the office. And no one knows who did it. But Ryan knows. He knows. And the building's on fire and the fire truck comes and the firemen run up there and Dwight's rescuing people, you know, whatever. He's being a hero. And Dwight has a contentious relationship with Ryan, the intern. And when Dwight finds out that it was Ryan, you know the line. Ryan started the fire, right? And the whole episode is the fact that Ryan didn't want to be known in the office for, some, for something. And all of a sudden, he's known for something, and Zacchaeus was known for something. The worst thing about him was what he was called and known by. By every single person he passed by, that's the sinner. 
But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus calls him by his name. You see, there's two ways to see Zacchaeus, which in turn frames how people interacted with him. The people saw him through his sin. They they saw him through the eyes of their, their judgment and their condemnation. But Jesus saw Zacchaeus as a man about to be set free from his sin. That is the goodness of Jesus. We see people through the worst of who they are. Jesus sees who you are in him. Even Zacchaeus, the traitor, the thief, the oppressor. So it makes me think, how do I see people? Do I see people the way Jesus sees people? If I'm honest, very rarely. On a good day, maybe. Thank goodness, thank God for Jesus who sees you and he knows you as someone who is becoming a brand new creation. Someone who is being set free from the sin that has easily entangled you. Jesus sees you and a future in Christ. The world wants to see you at your worst. Verse five, let's continue. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. So he quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. All who saw it began to complain. He's gone to stay with a sinful man. So my second point tonight is that Jesus seeks out the sinner. First he sees the sinner, and then he seeks out the sinner. If you think about back in Luke 18, if you've read the the story of the rich young ruler, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and lays out his resume. Zacchaeus is in a tree far away just trying to get a glimpse. And Jesus says, hey, you, come here. Zacchaeus, come here. I'm coming to your house today. In Luke 15, one through two, just a few chapters before, we see a similar conversation. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to, around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. It's the same word as complain. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Isn't it fascinating who was attracted to Jesus? It was the sinners. There was something about this man that the sinners of his time said, I just want to be around you. I have to see you. And Jesus said, yes, you are welcome at my table. You see, those who were self-aware of their sin, they knew who they were, what they had done, and that they were in great need of forgiveness. Jesus seeks you out and then he welcomes you in two ways. <laughs> I love this. Jesus invites in two ways, both to himself, right? We've talked about it many, many times in the last series. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, right? Come follow me. He invites us to himself. But then sometimes he invites himself into your life. That's what he did with Zacchaeus. He said, Zacchaeus, I see you, come down here. 
it is necessary for me to come to your house today. Like you guys know that friend that texts you, he's like, hey, what's up? You're like, nothing. And they respond with, great, I'm coming over. You're like, dang it, I wanted some alone time, soul care, come on, dude, right? Jesus is that friend. He's like, I'm, I'm coming in. I'm going to put myself into your life. He's that guy. We have two responses then to Jesus seeking out the sinner. We can respond as Zacchaeus did. It says, Zacchaeus welcomed him with joy. The presence of Christ in his life. It's like, come on. That word joy is the same word that we see in Matthew 2.10, where the shepherds, when they see this, the Christmas star, right? It says they were overwhelmed with joy. Same word. Zacchaeus was overwhelmed with joy at the invitation of Christ to be with him and then come into his life. Or you can have a different response. The one of the crowd that complained and grumbled and said, ah, he's spending time with a sinful man. And if I'm honest, can I just be honest with you tonight? Like, I don't, I don't like it when Jesus invites himself into my business. <laughs> I don't enjoy that process. Because that process feels exactly like conviction. That's when you know Jesus is like, hey, knock, knock, I'm here. It's time, it's time for me to, to, to get involved here. And you're like, wait, hold on. This, no, this is a part of me that's just me. Uh, I'm just gonna keep it right over here. That is not your business. I appreciate the, the, the concern. But I'm just gonna keep that right here. You're, you're good with all the other stuff, right? It's like when you go to a friend's house when you were a kid and they're like, hey, take your shoes off. You are welcome to play here, but you cannot go in these rooms. Like, that's how we treat the Lord. God, I will follow you in, in the living room and I will follow you in the kitchen, but in the backyard, in the study, the bedroom, none of the, you're not welcome there. Jesus, you are welcome here, not here. Complaining, grumbling. And so we can respond, you can respond to Jesus in two ways. Welcoming and joyful or grumbling and complaining. And I'm not casting any aspersions here, that is me. It is uncomfortable for me when Jesus invites himself into my life. So don't we have to ask ourselves, am I Zacchaeus in this story or am I the Pharisees? Say, eh, I'm good. Or are we Zacchaeus that says, come on in, let's have dinner. What do you have to say? You see, Jesus seeks sinners through welcoming them to himself and then inviting himself into their lives. Verse eight, let's continue. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord. He calls him Lord. Look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord. And if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Jesus told him, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and save the lost. So my last point tonight is that Jesus saves and transforms the sinner. Verse 
He sees us. And he seeks you for the sole goal of saving you and transforming you. Yes, Jesus loves you just as you are, but he loves you enough to not leave you there. I love this part of the scripture. Like this verse for the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost is the exclamation point for the last chapter of the Bible. The persistent widow, the prideful Pharisee, and the humble tax collector, the rich young ruler, the man born blind, and Zacchaeus. Jesus says, do you not see what I'm doing? I am here to seek and to save the lost. 1 John 1, 8 through 10. Again, self-awareness. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He doesn't just forgive us, us he cleanses us. In verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make Jesus out to be a liar. And his word is not in us. So the Christian that claims I don't need, I am not, when we do that, we're actually saying, Jesus, you're a liar. You're not telling the truth. But Jesus says, no, the opposite is true. The truth is not in you. You see, we are lost and we need to be found. And the greatest evidence of being found by Christ is a transformed life. That is the greatest evidence that you have been found. Because Jesus did not come to seek and save to leave you lost, to leave you in the sin that he is rescuing you from. Right, Paul talks about this all through Romans. Should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Right, Like, hey, the more I sin, the more grace God gives. His glory goes up. And Paul's like, are you kidding me? No. That would be like me saying to my wife, I know you are super gracious and very forgiving. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to go cheat on you. And I'm going to continue to cheat on you so that you have more opportunity to give me grace. Are you kidding me? Right? But that's too often our mentality. Well, God will forgive me. No, no, we're abusing grace. We're abusing his mercy. We're abusing his love for us. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The greatest evidence of being found in Christ is a transformed life. Luke 5.31 says, Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. But I have come to call the righteous, not, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came to call sinners to Repentance. That's transformation. That's change. He has called us to repent. I know it's a really big churchy word. We talk about it a lot, but I wanted to give you what four things that actual rep repentance requires. 
Like biblical repentance requires. Here's what biblical repentance is not. Let me just start with that. It is not feeling guilty. It is not embarrassment when you get caught. That's not repentance. That's just being embarrassed. That's just shame. The first thing that actual repentance requires is a conviction of sin. It is the recognition of who we are in light of God's holiness. Be holy, for I am holy. That is the standard. And it's a recognition that I have fallen greatly short of the standard. And so there's a conviction, that's that uncomfortableness that I was talking about earlier, where I'm like, I don't really, I don't, I don't enjoy when Jesus invites himself into my life, because it's conviction. And it's not a great feeling. When my sin is exposed, so actual repentance versus aspirational repentance requires conviction of sin. Second, it requires godly grief over our sin. Another way to say it would be the poverty of spirit. It's not the embarrassment of getting caught. It is a grief over my sin, that this is in me, that this is a part of who I am. And we grieve it. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. He says, for godly grief, catch this, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. Have you ever thought that there is a difference between godly grief and worldly grief? Worldly grief feels bad and embarrassed that you got caught. A godly grief produces something in you. This word called repentance. It's the turning, it's the changing of our mind about our sin. We think about our sin differently. We're not just embarrassed about it, we change what we think of it. So it starts with the conviction of sin. It's followed by the godly grief over our sin. And then thirdly, it's the rejection of self-righteousness. James 5, 16, we talk about a lot here at the gathering. It says, confess your sins to one another, pray for each other, and you will be healed. For the prayer of a righteous man is effective. Every time that, here's what I'm talking about when I say rejection of self-righteousness. Every time we feel that like, Hesitancy to confess self-righteousness. Every time we feel that, 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 that like, ah, I'm not that bad, self-righteousness. We have to reject that. Because left to myself, I am not righteous. Think about what we do when no one's looking. When we don't wanna confess, it's, that's, that, that's that self-righteousness coming up, like, well, you don't need to say anything, you're good, you can handle it, you can manage it, you, you, can, like, just, you can get around, you can, you can pursue Christ and still have it with you. So there's a conviction of sin, there's a poverty of spirit or a godly grief over our sin. Then there's that rejection of self-righteousness, that self-awareness of saying, God, I actually need you. Without you, there's nothing righteous in me. And then lastly, the fourth thing of biblical repentance 
is changing of our mind and heart. It's not just a change of our behavior. It's a change of our mind and our heart. How we think about ourselves, how we think about God, how we think about God's will, our life and our sin. We change how we think about it. It's not just like a little guilty pleasure. It is something to put to death. And we see Zacchaeus do this. This is how he responds to Jesus inviting himself into his life. He says, I will give half of everything I have away. And if I have ripped off anybody, I will give back four times. And we all know he has ripped off a lot of people. So here's the crazy thing. Zacchaeus, when he meets Jesus, he is poor in spirit and rich in money. And after he meets Jesus, interacts with Jesus, he is rich in spirit and poor in money. There is life transformation. He took his little G God and exchanged it for the big G God. And it changed him. It transformed his affections. And he said, what you offer me, Jesus, pales in comparison to all the money I've got stashed in here. And so I will gladly give it up to walk with you. And so Zacchaeus shows us repentance. It's not just a change of mind and heart, or I mean a change of behavior, it's a change of mind and heart. Romans 12, two, how do you do this, right? Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's repentance. Then you will be able to test and approve that God's will is his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You see, transforming our beliefs, and it's about transforming our beliefs and our behaviors, not justifying our beliefs and our behaviors. Transforming them. And for me, that looks like God changed me. What that looks like is saying, God, I'm gonna open your word and I want you to show me what you think of this and then I will adjust myself to you. What our world likes to do is we like to take God's word and we twist it so it just matches the standard that I'm good with. I have a standard for myself and I'm good with it. Let me find some Bible verses to make them match my decisions and my standard. Our world does this. So we must be careful that we're not just justifying and making excuses for our beliefs and behaviors, but we are actually doing the work of falling before the Lord and saying, God, would you transform my mind? Would you transform my heart to match your will, your good, pleasing, and perfect will? Now, don't forget, as we look at Zacchaeus, as we look at the stories that we're gonna be talking about over the next several weeks, that the motivation that Christ has for Zacchaeus, the motivation that Jesus had interacting with the rich young ruler was love. It's not power dynamic. It's not manipulation. Jesus isn't insecure and he just needs control of your life to feel better about himself. Jesus sees you and he seeks you out to save you because he loves you. And it's not an ooey-gooey boyfriend-girlfriend love. It is an agape love. It is a love that, that, that comes from goodwill, benevolence, and a willful delight in the object of his love, the sinner. Can you believe that? 
that God's love for you, his delight in you, is for your benefit. That's the love of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That sinners like me can be friends with a savior like him because of nothing of myself, but because of his benevolent delight and love for you. It's all for us, that we would be with him. And so in review, Jesus sees the sinner. Jesus seeks out the sinner, and Jesus saves and transforms the sinner because he is a friend of sinners like me and like you. So we can worship him. We can sing these songs. We can pray to him with all confidence because he sees you, he sought you out, he's invited you in to save you and transform you. Not for his benefit, for yours. So what do we do with this tonight? Maybe for you, it's just knowing just knowing and, and rewriting the narrative for you about who Jesus is and why Jesus cares so much about our sin. Maybe you just need to know tonight, the so what for you is just that God sees you, he knows you, and he's seeking you and inviting you to life with him. That's his heart for you. Number two, is a question. How do you respond to Jesus's invitation in your life? Either his invitation for you to follow him or his invitation into your life. How do you respond? Welcoming and with joy or grumbling and murmur and complain like, ugh, okay. And number three, what is keeping you from actual, not aspirational, actual repentance and transformation? Because we like to live in the aspirational world, right? We, we love to be dreamers. I know I need to do this. I want to do this. This is my bucket list. Here's what I know I should do. This is what I want to do. But what are you actually doing? Is there actual repentance? Is there an actual grief over our sin? Is our actual steps that we're taking to renew our minds so that we, we think about our life differently than we thought about it before? We think about our behavior differently than we thought about it before. Is there actual repentance or is it just aspirational? Which makes us feel better for a little while. Because we, we'll feel bad, right? For Zacchaeus, it was actual. He actually met Jesus. And Jesus actually knew his name. And Jesus actually invited himself into Zacchaeus' life. And Zacchaeus actually responded with biblical repentance. And from that day forward, Zacchaeus was actually a different man. He didn't have as much money as he had before. He's a different man. He was much more generous before he was greedy. You see, Jesus calls us to something. He calls us to follow him, 
and I love the heart of Jesus, man, he is a friend of sinners. He's your friend and he's my friend. And he's a friend that says, I have what, life for you. I see what's, what's going on. I see you. Come, follow me. We're gonna leave these on the screen. Let me pray. God, I wanna thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement we can take, the challenges that we can take from Jesus and his interaction with Zacchaeus. God, would you help us be as curious as Zacchaeus? Would you help us have a childlike faith like Zacchaeus? God, I just, I, I just think so often, I just ignore the idea that you might show up. Zacchaeus was ready. He was anticipating that you show up and you did. And it changed his life and it changed his eternity. God, let us not fall asleep at the wheel that we would miss you showing up in our life. That we would find new life in you. God, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for loving us despite our sin. In your son's name, amen.